0: Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb
1: and I'm Joe McCormick.
0: All right, today's episode we're going to be talking about board games. So the most obvious place to start here is Joe. What about you? What are, what are what is your favorite board game or what are what board games are you most nostalgic for?
1: Well, uh, to have a very conventional answer, I have a lot of fond memories of playing Monopoly as a child. But Uh, I I was just thinking about how the board games I got most excited about as mm -hmm. a kid really had no staying power whatsoever. They weren't games that people would still be talking about or still playing really much 20 years later. I was very interested in games that had a lot of – complicated physical apparatus Uh, like I I remember seeing the commercials for Mouse Trap I think the game was that had all these traps that would fall down on
0: figures and I was really into that though I don't know if I ever actually played it well, it was a lot to set up Mousetrap. Yeah. Uh, more recent versions of Mousetrap, by the way, have simplified the setup. So it's oh, really? a lot easier to play. The game itself is still pretty basic, but at least it's not this just box of junk that has to be assembled.
1: Well, another example I remember being super excited about but never actually playing was I, I took a class when I, not took, I was in a class when I was in elementary school. It was a computer class. And it was one of those cases where they tried to make it cool by gamifying the class. So if you mm-hmm. did good things in the class, you get Points and you could spend those on prizes, like it's Chuck E. Cheese or something. You know, get a switchblade comb. Uh, <laughs> but the, I never got enough points to get this one prize. But I always eyed it, and every time we went into the room, and it was a it was a board game called the Omega virus, and I just had like – my wildest fantasies were about how cool this game was because it seemed like it involved a talking robot on the board, and I think the premise was like you're on a space station, and an evil computer virus takes it over, and you like go to spaces with your little figurine, and you have to press the robot, and it talks at you. It's like, you know, infection spreads and (laughs) stuff. Um, I can't be sure because I haven't played it, but I – I'm almost positive this game must be terrible, like not (laughs) very fun, not very replayable. But I just sucked in by that that fluff component, just the, this like machine that comes with it that you interact with. And I'm sure I would have been suckered in the same way by those horrible looking board games that have like VHS tapes that oh, would yeah. accompany them, uh, as has been documented on Everything is Terrible, like that Star Trek board game that has uh, the guy who keeps saying experience
0: bish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned the fluff, well, we should go ahead and, and, uh, and describe this for everyone uh, who, who may not be Familiar uh, when when we, when we talk about board games uh, and just gaming in general, uh, generally there is a distinction between fluff and mechanics, mm-hmm. and I would add that there is an additional um, part of this trifecta that being materials. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, the the pure mechanics of a game are just the rules of the game, how things move, how points are acquired, mm-hmm. and how a winner or winners is determined. Right. So, like, if someone's playtesting a game that they've developed, it may have very little or even no fluff. It could just be a system of numbers, uh, the, a kind of game that would would just totally not appeal to someone like me like i like i like a hefty a hefty dose of good fluff well yeah fluff being the um the story the characters the setting like Oh, oh, I'm moving pieces around on the board. What are they? Oh, it's a king and a queen and, and an army and some guys riding horses. OK, now you're talking. Fluff. A,
1: an example of a game I think with no fluff is like go. Yeah. It's just tiles with rules or not t- – you know, pieces on a board with rules. And there's no imagery. There's no story. there You know, that all that's gone. Maybe you could apply things like that to it. And maybe people have in some cases for all I know. But the bare game itself is the draw. It's just the mechanics. Then you've got all these other games. I think of like Candyland and yes. The Game of Life, where really what's attractive about the game is like the illustrations on the board and yeah. the idea of what your character, the story of what your characters are doing as you, you know, spin a wheel or roll dice and advance along spaces.
0: Yeah. So, so the fluff in Candyland is really good, but also the material. You know, it has a it has a neat looking board. Also, I th- it wasn't Life the one that had the pop-o-matic bubble. That being a bit, maybe I'm thinking of another game. Uh,
1: I think you are. I think life has a spinning wheel, like the wheel of fortune, oh, well, that because you know yeah. it's life. So,
0: well, there was some other game. I'm sure listeners will will, will clue us in here. But it had the popomatic bubble, you know, it had this material aspect of the game where you're like, that looks so fun. I just want to press that thing all day and play this game, even though it might suck. Um, like well, one example from my childhood, I remember being. A super bored with Monopoly. I hate Monopoly, uh, uh-huh. the passion. Cool, but I do remember loving Fireball Island. Like that was, that was this game for anyone who hasn't played it or or seen that it's been. It's actually been reissued. Uh, there was like a Kickstarter for it. It's this game with tremendous material and fluff features. It is a. It's like a three D topographic island, and there is a monster head. Um, temple at the top of a volcano in the center that shoots out marbles uh, at certain times in the game to knock your player back down the mountain. Whoa! And uh, so it's just you know it had a great ad campaign, but it was clearly the game itself is not that complicated and probably not that good. I haven't played it since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. But but clearly it was leaning very heavily on material and fluff.
1: But this makes board games an interesting thing to discuss in the context of invention because board games are not the only not the only thing we use that has appeal on both the material or not the uh, both the mechanical side and the fluff side. I mean, lots of inventions uh, the success of them depends on both. Right. Some things become very popular because they are inherently very useful in in their most basic functional sense. And other things become popular just because there's something aesthetically cool about them.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> like, like another game that instantly comes to my mind is Space Hulk,
1: mm-hmm. which was
0: a game that that I, I saw advertisements for as a kid and I, I wanted just because the, the, the Warhammer 40,000 fluff to it was so good. You know, it was like these space soldiers in armor fighting xenomorph-like uh, aliens, the the, the Tyranid gene stealers. And so, so I was instantly in. I was instantly sold by the fluff. The, 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 the figurines looked great, so I was sold by the material. And uh, later when I actually got to play it, It's a fine game as well. So all three of these things can line up. And when they do, you often have a game that stands the test of time. But the curious thing about time in board games is you can look at something like Monopoly or uh, you can look at a game like uh, Space Hulk. And if you strip them down, there's nothing about this game that could not exist 30 years ago a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, mm-hmm. because you're ultimately just moving pieces around. like the fluff can change. you know? It's just like what is space so it's it's, it's people and monsters. And people have been battling monsters in human myth uh, for uh, you know since time out of mind. Uh, th- there's nothing about uh, about most of these games when you strip them down uh, that can't exist in another age, but they but they didn't. there's this there's still this evolution of of the mechanics of games, the way we play games, and the sort of games we play.
1: Yes, that is really interesting. The way that, you know, it can seem like how how did it take thousands of years for this game to be invented? But then again, almost all board games are you could probably say derivative of forms of other board games oh, that previously existed. I mean, th- there are a few basic types. There's like the type where you try to reach a space on a board before everyone else does mm-hmm. or the type where you try to accumulate the most of a certain type of token or you know money type op- uh, uh, currency. Uh, and then there's the kind where you have armies that battle each other until the other one is eliminated. Right. So while we keep coming up with new games that have never existed before, almost all the games we come up with are in some way – they've got ancestors in terms of their basic format and play style.
0: Absolutely. So you could take various modern games, take them back in time and not only would, uh, would, would even ancient people recognize it as a game – they would probably they might even be able to say oh well that's 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 kind of like this game that we play it's kind of like a it's a racing game or it's a fighting game etc
1: of course board games are not something that is found in nature they are a product of human civilization so they had to be invented at some point and that's what we're going to be looking at today what is a board game what does it mean how was it invented and what role does it play for us now, before we explore the uh, the invention and the role of board games in human culture, uh, we usually like to ask the question about an invention: what came before it? Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that helps you understand what it actually is. And so, I was trying to think what came before the board game. It's not like you know there was a there was a, a pre board game board game that we know about. So it wasn't quite like that. But one thing we can be very sure of is that before we had board games. What do you do with a board game? You play it. So before we had board games, we had play.
0: That's right. If you look at a, at a board game or – you know, in, in this whole episode, you can also think a little outside of just board game and think of games that maybe don't actually involve a board or a play surface. What are they but kind of a, a simulation of something in reality with lower stakes usually? Uh, and that's something that can exist even without some sort of physical apparatus or materials, right? And certainly that's something we see animals do as well.
1: Right. Well, I mean, we certainly don't see animals play board games. We do see them play. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. We, we see them, let's say, play fighting, where it's like they're fighting, but they're not really fighting. The stakes are not the same.
1: Right. And th- this is a really interesting psychological and biological question. Uh, it's interesting to me, but also there's a whole field of, of study around it, the study of play. What is play exactly? Exactly. What is a game? It's one of those things, you know, it's in the pornography category. We know it when we see it, but Mm -hmm. it's hard to set out a comprehensive definition of what exactly play is or what exactly a game is. In fact, the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein used the example of a game as his prime illustration of how not all useful categories can be bounded by a fixed set of universal characteristics. You know, this is one of his philosophical principles. Like some concepts and categories instead operate on this principle that he called family resemblances. Quote, a complicated network of similarities overlapping and crisscrossing. And to give a better example of this, I want to quote from a section of his book, Philosophical Investigations, that explains this thinking uh, with, with a few abridgments. So Wittgenstein writes, quote, Consider, for example, the proceedings that we call games. I mean board games, card games, ball games, Olympic games, and so on. What is common to them all? For if you look at them, you will not see something that is common to all, but similarities, relationships, and a whole series of them at that. Look, for example, at board games with their multifarious relationships. Now pass to card games. Here you find many correspondences with the first group, but many common features drop out and others appear. When we pass next to ball games, much that is common is retained, but much is lost." Are they all amusing? Compare chess with knots and crosses or is there always winning and losing or competition between players? Think of patience. In ball games, there is winning and losing, but when a child throws his ball at the wall and catches it again, this feature has disappeared. Look at the parts played by skill and luck, at the difference between skill in chess and skill in tennis. Think now of games like ring a ring of roses I think that's like Ring Around the Rosie. <laughs> uh, it, he, here is the element of amusement, but how many other characteristic features have disappeared? And we can go through many, many other groups of games in the same way, see how similarities crop up and disappear. And the result of this examination is we see a complicated network of similarities overlapping and crisscrossing, sometimes overall similarities, sometimes similarities of detail. And I've always thought that's a really interesting observation, that we have these categories, game is one of them, Mm -hmm. I guess play would be another one, where we can identify it when we see it, we point out a thing and say, that's a game, or that is play, but you can't put together a, a comprehensive definition that includes everything that is a game or everything that is play
0: right yeah I, yeah I love uh, I love what he said here because it, it it makes me think for instance of something like uh like bowling yeah like bowling is is this uh this activity that yeah you know, certainly one can make an argument for game one can make a strong argument for sport and I think there are elements of the two like bowling to me uh, feels like uh, an activity where the world of sport and game converge uh-huh. and perhaps could cause a little bit of category confusion.
1: Wait, do I detect from this are you staking out a position that sports are not games?
0: No, I th- I'm 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 saying that the the distinction kind of falls in with what he's talking about here, oh, okay. you know, like you you look at the the baseball game, you look at a, a game of Monopoly or cards mm-hmm. and yeah, there are some things that line up about them and yet there is a distinctive dis- uh, difference between the two.
1: Yeah, uh, it it can be really difficult because so if Wittgenstein is right, we're faced with a problem in trying to say, uh, organize a scientific study of the idea of play or of games because we want to understand what play is and what role it plays, what games are and what purpose they serve. But we have trouble creating like an airtight definition. There always seem to be some examples of things that just don't quite fit the definition you come up with. Mm -hmm. But we would still look at those things and call them games or play. And yet for the purpose of research, it's important to have clear definitions. So a lot of what these uh, researchers do is just try to come up with the definition. And they can end up feeling kind of... uh, (laughs) I don't know what the word is, kind of kind of multifarious and plodding as far as definitions go, uh-huh. like they've got a lot of clauses in them. Uh, but I, I want to read one I came across that I feel like is a pretty good biological definition of play. It might not get everything, but it's one of the best I've read. And it was uh, set out by a University of Tennessee researcher named Gordon Burghardt in the American Journal of Play in 2010. And this is this is his definition, quote, Play is repeated behavior that is incompletely functional in the context or at the age in which it is performed and is initiated voluntarily when the animal or person is in a relaxed or low-stress setting. So that that, that might be kind of hard to wrap your brain around, but I want to break out. It's got like five parts there. Okay, right?
0: because already I'm thinking this applies to everything from hunting – uh, to uh well no
1: that's the part okay, okay so so first thing is that the behavior is not functional okay. it doesn't contribute to current survival so hunting wouldn't count unless well, you're doing it recreationally and i feel like
0: a lot yeah you know, i mean there are a lot of people who do it recreationally. there are a lot of people who certainly n- n- need to hunt to some uh degree right. or certainly consume the, the the food that they obtain through hunting mm-hmm. but anyway uh, continue
1: well, okay, so you, you you might, in that case, class recreational hunting, in fact, as a form of play. Maybe it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so it's at least in the animals who need to hunt to survive, hunting is not play because hunting is functional. So play is not functional. Number two, it's done for its own sake. It's This is what we would call fun. It's intrinsically motivating, right? Okay. You don't have to do it for some other reason. It is itself attractive to you as an activity.
0: Right, you're not expecting to obtain food by it you're not expecting to obtain a mate by it Uh, you were doing it just for the love of the game
1: right it pulls you in on its own power Three, the behavior is different from normal survival behaviors in at least one respect. So something that is exactly the same as things you do for survival, even if you're not currently doing it for survival, that's probably not play, right? Play tends to – in uh, Berghardt's words, quote, it is incomplete generally through inhibited or dropped final elements. Think about the way like play fighting – can like have the first parts of a fight there, but you don't actually go in for the kill or anything.
0: So gladiator competition play in some cases.
1: Well, that might be something up for debate, yeah. Uh, but uh, Berghardt also points out exaggerated awkward or precocious movements um, or behavior patterns with a modified form sequencing or targeting. Okay. Um, so like uh, attack behaviors against a thing that would not be normally a, a target of attack. Okay. I think about the way like uh, a dog will play with a ball like it is a piece of prey. Mm-hmm. It, I don't think the dog actually thinks that the ball has meat in it. It's playing with the ball, right? But it does the same things to the ball broadly that it would do to say a rat that was in the house. Okay, that's the third thing. Fourth thing, behavior is repeated. You, you know, you can do it more than once. Uh, and then fifth, it happens when stress is low. And this doesn't have to mean that there is no stress, but it just means it's not something that happens while you're currently like being chased by a predator. Right. And given this kind of definition, again, I think we can probably find ways that it might not perfectly fit what our intuitive ideas of play are. But I think that's a really good place to start. Um, and, And that sort of helps us think about what the roles of play and games might be for biological organisms like us.
0: All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. And we're back. One of the
1: things, of course, we mentioned earlier is that we know play predates things like board games because play is present in non-human animals. I mean, it's there and in, in, there are actually debates over how many animals it's present in. Like, for example, it's extremely common among mammals. It seems almost universal among mammals. Like, uh, people have generally seen the way dogs will chase and wrestle each other, the way kittens mm-hmm. stalk and pounce on each other and engage in various forms of play fighting. Cats are, I think, sometimes even more playful than people. People give them credit for.
0: Oh, yeah, especially the indoor variety that are cut off from their natural world and, uh-huh. of course, you know, partially insane because of what we've done to them. <laughs> uh, they're kind of in that, that permanent state of kittenhood. For instance, my cat uh, mm-hmm. stalks and attacks my feet pretty much every day, yeah. but does not seem to be doing it with intent to um, maim and consume my feet.
1: No, I mean, I would guess that that's probably play. It is done intrinsically for
0: the fun of doing it. Right. For her. It's not—I don't find it tremendously fun myself, but she loves it. She can't get enough of it. Well, why can't your feet take a joke? It's more the claws and the teeth <laughs> than the <than laughs> joke. I'm all up for the joke. Uh,
1: so, yeah, we, we know this is there in these—I uh, guess we consider them, since they're predatory mammals, we you know we think about them as having, like, more complex brains. But it's also there in, say, mice, like I was reading an article by— uh, the the. researchers, Lee Allen Dugatkin and Serena Rodriguez for a a Berkeley publication, Mm -hmm. and uh, they were pointing out that research has found that mice usually start playing about 15 days after they're born uh, and that play activities peak around 19 to 25 days. And this seems to coincide with – neuroscience has revealed – coincide with development of synapses in the cerebellum and those those synapses are necessary for muscle control in life. So there seems to be something going on where like young mice are playing around the same time their brains are developing the stuff that they need for for running around and surviving with, with muscle control. And also mice tend to show greater brain development when they're raised in environments with wheels and other play structures than in environments without them. Give mice something to play with and their brains do better.
0: So this is the basic idea that, that of, of play as a rehearsal for something. Play as practice for skills one will need as an adult.
1: Yes, or play being necessary for just uh, normal brain development. Mm. Um, and both of those are strong theories about why play exists in the animal world, though we'll come back to that in some caveats in just a minute. Uh, an interesting question I came across is, is there play among non-mammals? We know it's pretty much universal among mammals, but there are all these debatable reports of play among various birds and reptiles. Um, it does seem, for example, that ravens play. They they do stuff that's hard not to look at and say, that's play. Like juvenile ravens are attracted to novel objects almost in the way, uh, you know, like a, like a dog would be with toys. Right, And they seem to play around with them. One really interesting thing I came across was in 2015, the zoologist Vladimir Dinetz, uh published a paper in Animal Behavior and Cognition describing the play behaviors of of crocodilians, oh wow! playful crocodiles, which apparently was not news to people who worked regularly with these animals. But you might be wondering, well, how the heck does a crocodile play or an <laughs> alligator? You know, <laughs> what mm-hmm. does that look like? There are all kinds of ways. Uh, sometimes they chase after inflatable balls. They surf in waves. They snap at flowing water. They give each other piggyback rides. They blow bubbles. These are all things that seem to meet these biological and ethological definitions of play.
0: That's that's crazy because I I would certainly have have thought okay the raven might play it yeah. is an intelligent creature but reptiles but the reptiles yeah. yeah
1: yeah yeah I I would have been there with you but uh but apparently this is just common knowledge to people who work hands on with crocodilians a lot. Uh, even fish, there there is debate about this, about whether this really counts as play. But for example, they sometimes jump when there's no need to, when stress levels are low. Why? There's nothing chasing them; they're not getting oh. anything from it. We've talked about fish jumping on stuff to blow your mind yeah, we before. We did a
0: whole episode on that. Yeah. Uh,
1: and so there there are some ideas that maybe they're playing. Maybe this is a form of play. Now, it, once you get down to invertebrates, it really does get much trickier to find things that could reasonably be classed as play. Except, of course, in the Case of you know what cephalopods, right?
0: Oh, of course. Yeah, I was I was I was thinking about insects, and I was thinking, oh well, well, Dr. Seth Brundle told us. <laughs> That there, there are no insect politics. Right. And he didn't say anything about play, but it kind of stands to reason that insects would not play. But then, of course, I forget about uh, about the, uh, the invertebrate superstars of the cephalopod world.
1: Yeah, which are, you know, the true aliens on Earth. Like octopuses are clearly one of the most playful animals on this planet, though their play might seem very strange to us. They seem to enjoy puzzles and new toys and challenges, and sometimes they, like, pull on people in what seem to be strange examples of social play. Uh, there are also even reports of play like behaviors among insects like ants and wasps but these reports uh, this is very controversial
0: well i guess a lot of this is getting into an individual organism's uh, tendencies towards uh, neophilia uh, the, the, the you know the likelihood that they're going to seek out novel uh, experiences or items. If yeah. there's If they are, you know, a curious creature that benefits, has a survival benefit in trying things out, such as we've talked about raccoons on Stuff to Blow Your Mind before.
1: Oh, yeah. Of course, raccoons being mammals do seem to be somewhat playful, but also we talked about the idea that like raccoons who have stronger, uh, stronger neophilia instincts, the mm-hmm. ones that seek out novel objects and approach them rather than avoid them, they tend to do better in, say, urban environments. Right. Which, that makes sense. You approach some novel object in an urban environment you'll often get some fries out of it or something. Yeah. But anyway, so I want to come back and kind of rope in just a, a basic overview of, of the ideas about why play exists in animals. What biological purpose does it serve? Of course, this is something we don't fully know the answer to, right? This is this is an unsolved question, but there are some, some strong hypotheses with, with some evidence behind them. So one we already mentioned is that play is training for crucial survival or reproductive skills, and in the words of the English psychologist Peter K. Smith, This would mean, quote, play primarily affords juveniles practice toward the exercise of later skills. And you can already probably imagine tons of reasons for thinking this is the case. Like, think about um, how much of the play we see in other animals and in humans, frankly, resembles forms of survival and reproduction behavior. Play very often looks like fighting, hunting, escaping, feeding, or mating – Actions that, you know, mimic these activities in an exaggerated or incomplete form make up a huge portion of play behaviors. But there are also – there's some evidence against this too. There are studies in many animals including some types of mice and meerkats that have found that animals who play at a skill like hunting or fighting – do not later show advantages at this skill compared to individuals that play at the skill less. So, Hmm. maybe sometimes this isn't the case. Uh, There's also the question of why forms of play sometimes continue into adulthood after survival skills are mastered, or why some play behaviors, uh, especially in humans, do not mimic physical survival behaviors. A classic example of this would be the board game. Oh, yes. A couple of alternate theories I came across because they were mentioned by Dugatkin and Rodriguez. One is that play is essentially for like social species. It's for learning the rules. This is from the University mm-hmm. of Colorado biologist Mark Bakoff, uh, And he basically says that play is useful for developing a sense of morality and social skills – Like play allows animals to experience and internalize their social clan's sense of fairness, of inclusion and exclusion,
0: of justice and what cheating is. Oh, yeah. This is a very good uh, good point. Something that I see coming up uh, in my own life with a Mm -hmm. six-year-old playing some board games with him uh, while he's also learning how to play chess at school. And a lot of it is, you know, certainly there's a There's a – we're stressing abstract thought and Mm -hmm. and learning systems of rules and strategy. But a lot of it is like learning how to lose, Mm -hmm. uh, learning how to win, how to do both of those things gracefully, how how not to cheat, how to respond to cheating. Like these are all – all sort of aspects of the general exercise. Yeah,
1: so I think that that's a strong possibility as well. Another theory is uh, from the Czech researcher Marek Szpinka, uh, who says that play is to help animals not necessarily just practice individual skills like hunting, fighting and all that, but to generally prepare for the unexpected. It's how an animal readies its brain to be surprised by life and deal with that surprise gracefully. Huh. So things like being knocked off balance when you're not Expecting it, or things like encountering failure in a in a chase or something like this. Uh, another way of putting this is that play and games serve to increase versatility.
0: This is this is very a very good point because I'm thinking about like various physical sports. A lot of it does seem to have a seem to stress bodily awareness and mm-hmm. being able to uh, react physically. Uh, to change and then most board games uh, of any of any note you know there's some level of you go into the game with a certain strategy yeah. there's a certain way you can and perhaps will win uh-huh. but then the best laid plans right mm, it, it, foiled yeah you're foiled you have to figure out well how am I going to react to this and still try and achieve my initial goals maybe there's a different way I'm gonna have to win after all
1: well and this uh you know you you can see it in the way that we really we have an extremely direct of attitude toward people who Do not uh, lose or face adversity in games. Well, the person who flips the table when they get (laughs) when they you know get frustrated in risk or something—that's like an archetype we all know about. We all know that guy, and that behavior is strongly frowned upon.
0: Right now, part of it might be because they're playing Monopoly or some garbage game like that. But (laughs) but no, yeah, people who react like that to games—they can probably react like that too to just about any game. And I think one of the important lessons of gaming, like one that i I continually uh, try to embrace is in enjoying the way in which you lose. Yeah. Like I think, I think it's a testament to of a well-designed game because I've also played some games where I'm like, okay, this game is kind of b s, and I'm losing Uh, there's really what what am I doing Mm -hmm. you know but but a really good game you're like oh I see disaster is coming and isn't it interesting how it's playing out what can I do to minimize disaster that can sometimes become the new game that you're playing
1: that is a really great kind of game I hadn't even thought about that games that are interesting to lose Yeah. yeah Um, so one more theory I want to mention before uh, we move on Uh, the the last one I came across was in a presentation called What is Play For by the Penn State professor Gary Chick and this discusses the possibility that play is favored by sexual selection that it's that playfulness is a signaling mechanism of fitness in in adults and that might answer why even adults are playful and not just children Uh, like animals including humans tend to prefer mates that play because play is interpreted as a signal of a few things. Play signals youth, youthfulness. Play signals good health. Play signals intelligence, and it signals good socialization.
0: Yeah, these are all solid points. But Plus, in the more the human context, uh, there's a sense of leisure there, right? Like yeah. this individual has space in their life for something of little or no consequence, like a game.
1: Right. I mean, in the animal context, I think that's part of the good health signaling, right? right? If you show off that you can play a game, you're showing off that you're not starving and sick and at the edge.
0: Yeah, like, hey, look, I'm chasing a ball. This isn't going to feed me, but uh, I'm big enough. I can can catch something later. Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately,
1: we don't know which of these theories are, are correct. And there are other ones, too. We don't have time to chase them all down here. I guess you could also posit that, of course, play is not for anything, that it doesn't serve any adaptive biological purpose. But given how widely play is selected for, I really find this unlikely. But anyway, to come back to board games here, given all of this we've looked at, I think one of the interesting questions to ask is what kind of play does a board game represent and how does does a board game fit into this whole model? So if you take the the view that, well, maybe a lot of play is training for skills later in life, maybe mm-hmm. that's what most of play is for in the animal world – that's obviously plausible for a lot of different things because as we mentioned earlier how many types of play involve things that are necessary for survival like chasing fighting uh, you know playing house imaginative yeah. playing with skills of you know maintaining a domestic life that kind of thing
0: right finding your mystery date um, you know creating your you know ensuring your financial future mm-hmm. battling barbarians right um, or or, uh, or so simply just responding to luck responding yeah. to chance or responding to to uh, unforeseen events.
1: Well, I think that last one might be especially relevant with games, uh, with board games because what sets board games apart from so many of these other games like play fighting, play chasing, playing house and all that is that unlike these physical sports and stuff, board games become almost entirely abstracted from any physical activity that is important for survival or reproduction. They're abstract games. They're games taken into an imaginary space that you don't act out full behaviors with your body, you know?
0: Right. Yeah. Becomes even though you may have some impressive uh, uh, fluff, you may have some you know impressive materials, some very nice figurines, etc. It's still largely something that is taking place in the mind yeah. with the aid of uh, some physical materials and, of course, a system of rules.
1: With that in mind, I think we should maybe take a break and then come back and focus on uh, some of the earliest known board games and and see what we can make of them.
0: All right, we're back. Uh, So in researching this, we we looked to a number of different uh, sources, but of course I I ended up uh, picking up Brian M. Fagan's uh, excellent The Seventy Great Inventions of the Ancient World as a fun starting place. Uh Uh, He only devotes two pages to board games, but it, it provides a nice overview. And one of the things that he he drives home is that uh, board games are probably as old as human culture, uh, th- that pretty much any ancient or modern society has some sort of board game. Mm-hmm. It just seems innately tied to how we think and how we use objects and rules. And you could even go so as far as to say that they're a defining element of human society. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, they came out of something though, right? But But the details are lost to the mists of history. It's unlikely that there's a single necessity or breakthrough that evolved into game playing. uh, But there are a couple of key theories that I think are worth considering. Okay. So the first is that, and this ties in with some of the discussions we've had about play, is that it is the the safe sublimation of competition and rivalry.
1: Oh, this is often a theory about sports as well. Right. It does something to, uh, it takes an instinct that we have that can be destructive and gives us an outlet for that instinct that is not destructive.
0: Right. You know, today we have a game night in which, say, uh, empl- employee, fellow employees or friends or family members members will gather together and attempt to crush each other yeah. so that one may rise up victorious over the rest. Yeah, This would be terrible if we did this for realsies. Uh, but since we're doing it within the confines of a board game uh, or card game or what have you, uh, it's it's perfectly acceptable. It's even beneficial.
1: Well, I mean, look at the way people practice sports fandom, you can clearly see in this that we have some powerful instincts that uh, that that cause us to want to band together in groups in support of, you know, against a common enemy that's also banding together. We have, I think, some inherent warlike instincts, and I think it would probably be bad if we just had these instincts bouncing around without any way to express them that wasn't actually harmful.
0: But generally speaking, you're dealing with, with far lower stakes. Yes. Even if there is Money on the line. It is still it, general. Generally, your life is not on the line. Right now, the second idea, and this one, this one uh, I, I really find interesting, is that board games emerged out of ritual and divination practices.
1: Yes, 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 yes. This is really interesting. Now, of course, divination practices would be what it would be trying to answer an unanswerable question or gain some piece of knowledge by the invocation of the gods or spirits or something, usually using a physical medium.
0: Yeah, to, yeah, and sometimes it's overt. It is, say, asking a spirit, um, a deceased uh, loved one or an ancestor or a god or a goddess or a supernatural entity for help. Mm-hmm. Other times it's, it's a bit more obscure, like what you're actually asking and why you're using a particular means to do so.
1: We had an episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind where we talked about the I Ching, where we get into a lot of this.
0: Yeah, talking about the I Ching is a, essentially a randomization engine for divination that depends on physical objects to create and record randomized events. Uh, Specifically, uh, tossing a few coins, uh, laying some sticks down uh, to keep track of uh, what the coins tell you, and then referring to a system of rules uh, uh, to tell you what these lines mean Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, of course, how you should act, what you should expect based on that.
1: Now, I remember in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind episode, we talked about how even though, you know, we're not positing that sortilage methods where you like, you know, cast lots or something are actually giving you, say, knowledge of the future or anything Mm -hmm. like that, uh, they could still be useful or adaptive in that they might tend to prompt action when you are otherwise frozen. Like it's possible, you know, you're just faced with a problem. You don't know what to do. And in fact, it's the case that really any action is better than no action. And thus consulting a divination method gives you impetus to go forward with some type of response.
0: I remember in that uh – I Ching episode that we did, uh, we we looked to a, a quote from uh, Julian Jaynes, mm-hmm. um, who uh, is the individual that was behind uh, the the, um, the bicameral mind hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, but th- but this particular quote has has little to do with 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 that particular hypothesis. But uh, he was talking about sortilege, mm-hmm. and uh, he said, uh, "quote." But this simplicity, even uh, a, a triviality, to us should not blind us from seeing the profound psychological problem involved, as well as appreciating its remarkable historical importance. We are so used to the huge variety of games of chance, of throwing dice, roulette wheels, etc., all of them vestiges of this ancient practice of divination by lots, that we find it difficult to really appreciate the significance of this practice historically. It is a help here to realize that there was no concept of chance, whatever. Until very recent times. so yeah, to to think about, and he's tying that in a little bit to his hypothesis. but but for the most part, yeah, thinking of the primordial uh, you know ancestors to the board game mm-hmm. to games of chance, being simply a way of, of figuring out how to act, uh, like what I, I must do something, but uh, how do I possibly weigh these two things? I must appeal to some other force. Yeah, I mean, I,
1: I think there's something to that. We we can't know this for sure that mm-hmm. you know ancient or prehistoric peoples had no concept of chance, but I, judging by their writings, uh, when we have access to those, it does seem like they didn't really have much of an idea of randomness. At least to me, it seems more like there's a general belief in sort of like determinism by the gods or by some kind of power of fate. Right. That, uh, you know, when something that that appears random happens, say even just the outcome of a dice roll, that was the will of the gods for it to happen that way. And so if you imagine board games in this context, they would take on a very different cast, right? Uh-huh. Every time you throw the dice, which I guess at that time probably wouldn't have been dice, but would have been something Something like you know sticks that fall in a certain way to tell you how many places to move or what the outcome of something is, or uh, knuckle bones, or a common one. Rattle so those you, bones. Yeah, yeah, rattle the bones. I think there's this old Babylonian uh, inscription that's like a gambler's lament that says like, whoa, woe, woe to me, the knuckle bones." <laughs> that, that's like you know, oh no, that you know they gave me bad fate. But the bad fate could be within a game. And within the game, this would still be interpreted perhaps as a deliverance by the gods or, or a punishment by the gods. Like the gods are determining who wins your dice game.
0: Yeah. It's kind of like you're going, all right, God, I need some help on this. Give me a sign. All right. I don't see a sign. What I'm going to do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this stick. And if it lands this way, I'm going to assume that's a yes. Uh-huh. And if it lands the other way, I'm going to take that as a no. So balls in your court, God, here we go.
1: But what if it's not a yes or a no about a question in your life, but about do I get to advance a space in this game on the board?
0: Wow. Imagine if that was the case. Every time we play a board game, a divine being has to to like clock in. For the uh-huh. day, like, oh, my goodness, they're playing Arkham Horror. I'm going to be here all night. <laughs> uh, I hate this one. Can't they just play uh, play checkers?
1: Uh-huh. You know, I wonder if this may come in as – one of the things I often wonder about is, like, why do some religions forbid games of chance or forbid gambling? What is it about that activity that makes it detestable to the religious authorities and the people who, who come up with the, with these religious dogmas? I wonder if games of chance, especially in the ancient frame of mind, tend to suggest a belief in like consulting demons and a uh, non-sanctioned spiritual authorities, you know, mm-hmm. if, so that when you roll a die or roll a knucklebone, y- you may in fact be uh, having a consult every time you do it with some kind of uh, illicit spirit with a demon or something.
0: Huh. I and mean, it would be interesting to come back and do an invention episode on gambling, but I also wonder, and I may be completely off on this, I wonder if it's ever a case where, okay, if a board game or a game is simply a simulation, a simplification with lowered stakes, if you then raise the stakes again, does that become gambling? And because uh, that's kind of how I always think about gambling. It's like playing cards for fun, That's fun. Mm. Playing cards for money, okay, you've t- taken something fun and you've made it a little dirty, and you've made losing feel more real. Uh, And you've made winning a little more icky somehow. Everyone's mileage is going to vary on that. Well, but, I mean, uh, but that's my take on it.
1: I think there could also be – when you're talking about not just games of chance, uh, but like adding the gambling element. Yes, yeah. Uh, which does seem to be often crucial. You know, is there money on the line? There you could also just say that it's like, well, it's a basic social control problem because for some reason where there's gambling, there also tends to be disorder and crime. Mm-hmm. You know, gambling tends to lead to fights and, and murder and stuff. It could just be – Something like as simple as that,
0: right? I, I know we were looking at at some uh, sources about uh, Islamic uh, law and the interpretation of Islam- Islamic laws concerning games of chance mm-hmm. versus games of skill, and it seems like for the for the most part, based on what we're looking at, uh, generally gambling is bad. Ga- gambling is against the rules, but games that have dice in them, if they're games of skill, you know, is generally okay. So specifically, the, uh, you know, Dungeons and Dragons is fine. Uh, well, but, I think
1: there's a difference opinion among different yes Muslim you' you're still you're still going to find
0: some some individuals that have you know they're a lot stricter uh-huh. on this and, and and stricter on the interpretation and would say that no, if there are dice involved if there's some sort of chance element then then it is not permitted.
1: you know going back to the sort of uh, adaptive or evolutionary framework, I wonder if you can fundamentally class games of chance versus games of skill. As as having different kinds of roles in our biology and our psychology.
0: Yeah, yeah, probably so. And may, maybe that's a, again one of the reasons that it's so perfect when the, when those two things are balanced in a single game, mm-hmm. where. You do need skill to win, and yet there are these 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 unpredictable moments, these uh, these turning points that can totally change the outcome. And no amount of skill, like maybe skill, will be essential to survive those twists and turns.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, dealing with uh, dealing with unforeseen circumstances is a skill in a way. Yeah, the, the the skill of versatility is the ability to face the vicissitudes of fate and come up with a, with a way around.
0: Like Candyland is definitely a game that requires no skill. <laughs> right. You know, if anybody who's ever played it with a child knows, uh, you virtu- it's just all random movement. There's there's not really any – there are no decisions to be made. You're the complete uh, whims of the universe mm-hmm. when it comes to that. That's going to be the one the gods really hate clocking in for because they have to do all the work. But then you have games like chess, right, where, yeah. yes, you're having to respond to changes that are perpetrated, but they're perpetrated by your opponent. Right. At any rate, I do want to drive home that whether we're looking at this idea of uh, of games and board games as the safe sublimation of competition or as something that emerged out of divination practices, uh, we can't really know for sure. There's evidence for both of these. Uh, there are likely other reasons in play as well, including just the desire to do something that is amuses you, something that is fun.
1: But I'm still haunted by that question. How did the thing that amuses us, the thing that's fun, become moving around little tiles on top of a patterned surface or, uh, you know, or like rolling a knucklebone and seeing how many of a piece of uh, tokens we got to take or something? It's such a strange and abstract way of approaching games, which in their core, they should involve the body, right? They should mm-hmm. involve, like, you should be playing house or you should be play fighting you should be running a race but instead we're doing it in this abstract space with these little representative figurines I mean it almost seems like it suggests to me that there could be some kind of relationship uh, between the emergence of board games as this abstracted form of play and the the emergence of writing as this abstracted form of uh, representing thoughts this abstracted
0: form of speech yeah taking what's going on inside our minds and put it and externalizing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because th- think of one of the, the key things that our mind does is we're we we are simulating future events. We're engaging in mental time travel, both past and, and future. We're trying mm-hmm. to envision what is going to happen and how we're going to react to stuff like that happening. And it's a purely mental uh, uh, mental exercise. Mm-hmm. So it's, in, in a sense, planning it all out or doing just very you know, abstract versions of planning it all out in a physical system, in a board game. Like, that's that's perfectly in keeping with the spirit of play fighting, but it's a different type of fight. It's the kind of fight... That, that that really only conscious beings are capable of engaging
1: in. This is really interesting. And that's why I am so excited to come back next time and talk about the earliest known evidence of board
0: games. What do the earliest board games look like? What are they? That's right. It's, it's, there's some fascinating examples to, to run through. But we've run the full course uh, for this episode. So in the meantime, as you're waiting for next week's episode to come out, head on over to inventionpod.com. That is the mothership for this show. That's where you'll find all the episodes of Invention, links out to some social media accounts, a link to a store even if you really like our jazzy logo and would like to get it on a sticker or a shirt. Uh, That's a fun way to support the show. But really, the best thing you can do to support Invention and ensure that we get to keep rolling these episodes out is to make sure you have subscribed. And once you've subscribed to Invention, uh, make sure you give us a nice rating wherever you have the ability to do so. Uh, Throw up some stars, throw up a nice review uh, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback about this episode or any other episode, to suggest a topic for a future episode of Invention, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com.